There's a reason why, why God calls himself our Father, and it's really a, a kind of a cool thing that we, he is a relational God, desires to, to be known very personally by us. And what a great gift that is to have uh, godly men in our lives who can be that example of Christ to us. <clears throat> All right, this uh, does not have anything to do with Father's Day. <laughs> but uh, how many of y'all, when you were in, in high school or whatnot, uh, read Charles Dickens' book, Great Expectations? Okay. okay, 8.30, like, no one. <laughs> if you have not, you get to learn a little bit here. So in Charles Dickens' book, uh, Great Expectations, there's a character named Miss Havisham. And her life took a dramatic turn. When just 20 minutes before she was supposed to be married, she got a letter from her fiancé saying that he wasn't going to show. He was standing her up at the altar. And at that very moment, her life stopped. Now, when we were introduced to her in the book, she's much older, but nothing had changed. She still wore her wedding dress every single day, even though it was dirty and tattered. And she had every clock in the house set to show continually 8.40 a.m., the exact time when she opened the letter. Even the wedding cake remained uneaten and gathering cobwebs. Her life was frozen, shackled to the past, either because she refused to change or because she was unable to do so. And though she's something of a villain in the book, you can't help but have some pity on the tragedy that is her life. Now today in the gospel lesson, we actually encounter another version of Miss Havisham. In the text, Jesus travels away from Judea and enters into Gentile territory, a region of the Gerasenes. And when he arrives, he's immediately met by a demon-possessed man. And according to Luke, this guy is out of his mind. He was possessed, not by a single demon, but by legions of them. And as a result, he was a danger to himself and a danger to those around him. He was unfit for society. And the townspeople had, had, didn't know what to do with him. They had taken him out to the, into the tombs, the outskirts of town, and he wandered amongst the tombs in isolation, without clothing, without home, without community. And even then, he was still a danger. The townspeople couldn't tolerate him. Instead, they, they tried to chain him up and to tie him down. They put him under, under guard. But even that was no use, because the man would break the chains. He was driven to hurt himself. Like Miss Havisham, he was unable to change. And clearly no friend or family member had been able to change him either. But the one who could change him, the one who would change him, had just stepped on shore. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, looked upon this helpless, changeless disaster of a man with compassion and mercy. And with just the power of his word, Jesus commanded the many demons to leave the man, and he was immediately healed. His encounter with Jesus had changed him. And now he was a completely different man, in a completely different situation. He had no more demons, and there was no more running out into the wilderness. There was no more trying to hurt himself. He was now fully clothed and restored to a community, and sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Chaos 
isolation, despair had all given way to calm and community and hope. He was changed. And that change didn't come through reading a self-help book or completing a 30-day challenge or anything other than being in the presence of Christ and hearing his word of love and mercy. Jesus came to this man and remade his world. Now, we look at this miraculous event with awe as we see God demonstrate such power over evil. When we look at the story and we rejoice that Jesus loves and heals even people with ruined lives. We may even look at this story with envy. As we see this massive change in the demon-possessed man, and we long for that kind of change in our own lives. As much as people say they don't like change, deep down we're all aware of our need for it in our lives. The quest for change is the impetus behind a lot of what we see and a lot of what we do. Commercials are a great example of this, right? All these commercials suggest that their products, their services are going to change your life. They're going to enhance your identity. Or we go out and we'll hire fitness trainers and dietitians to help us change our bodies. We go through counseling. We enlist coaches to help us change our mindsets and to improve our skills. We have books that help us to change. We have self-help podcasts that are in the top of the charts, all because we want change. And it's a good thing to want change. And yet, as many of us know, change can elude us. Diets absolutely can work. And we can vastly improve our health through them. But I'm guessing that a lot of us have experienced a diet that has ended with every rule broken after like the second week. Or we can, we can make great strides in our organization, in our efficiency, in our use of time by using schedules, and planners, and daily routines. But somewhere out there is a giant stack, piles and piles of books these planners that are filled out from January to March and the rest of it empty because we went back to our old habits. We want change, but change can elude us. Now, so far, all of the things we've been talking about, we would classify that as something we could call secular change. What I mean by that is uh, things like changing our physique or changing our income or our living situation. It's a behavioral change, a behavioral change. I'm going to change the way I do things. Today, we're actually going to focus more on what I would call sacred change. That is changing the heart, changing our desires. Things like, I want to, uh, things that are honestly much more difficult for us to change, like uh, a shift in, in our outlook on the world and how we see people. Or our level of trust in the Lord. Our patience with our kids. Our overactive pride. Or our lack of self-esteem. What we think actually satisfies us. Those are some of the internal demons that fight against us. And that drive us mad. That make us a danger to ourselves and to other people around us. That's sacred change. It's a change of the heart. It's a change in our condition, 
before God. And like the man in the gospel lesson, sometimes we feel like that demon-possessed man who can't affect heart change in and of ourselves. Maybe it's the way that we we treat someone who's hurt us, right? And you want to let go of that anger so badly, but it just keeps on surging forward. So it's a lot easier just to not be in the person's presence, not to see him at all, than it is to reconcile with him. Or perhaps it's an addiction that you hate and that you're ashamed of, and you can't stop yourself from giving into that urge. Or maybe it's the worry that presses down on you like a vice. And all you really want to do is just close your eyes and sleep, but you're gripped by it. Whatever the temptation is, whatever the demon is, whatever the hardship is that oppresses you that you have to go through and and endure, it typically ends the same way. We want sacred change, but we're unable to do it in and of ourselves. And alone, we can't change our hearts. We can change a lot about our behaviors, and we should can't change our hearts. And maybe part of the problem is we try to change in the wrong way. We say, I can change my heart if I change my behavior. All I need is just five easy steps for the better life. That's what I'll need. I need the list of do's and don'ts. In Jesus' day, they thought that's what they could do too. They thought that they could be pure by just keeping the law and adhering to a legalistic lifestyle. Pharisees were terrific at this, right? They set forward all kinds of of extra laws and extra spiritual disciplines to try to keep people from sinning. But what they didn't realize is they were doing the very same thing that those townspeople were doing in the gospel lesson. They were taking this problem, this sinful being, and they were trying to tie it down with law, with chains of the law. Trying to keep it under guard. I mean, it didn't work. It didn't work. The result was the very same. Broken laws, broken chains, and no actual change. And we try to do the same thing today, don't we? Rather than looking to the Lord, we come up with all sorts of things to make ourselves more righteous, more presentable to the Lord. Maybe we've written out little rituals to perform every morning, or we've tried to control our worried hearts with lists. And again, lists, routines, daily practices— fantastic, amazing things that can absolutely change the way you do things. Great secular change methods. But they don't change the heart. They don't change our sinful desires. The law doesn't do that. Whatever chains, whatever shackles we put on ourselves to to stay in line or to be more righteous, the sinner's heart will break them all. As useful as rituals and disciplines can be, they don't accomplish sacred change. But the one who can, the one who does, the one who will change us comes to us today in his word and at the table. It is God himself who saves us and who sanctifies us. And it's only God who brings true and lasting change because that's only God who can change our hearts. And Jesus does exactly what legalism cannot do. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit. As Ezekiel reminds us, he says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Who's doing the actions? The verbs. It's God who brings about change. It's God who does this. And without this divinely done transformation, we could never be changed. But thanks be to God that he's in the business of changing people. And he sent Jesus to step onto the shore of our world and to live in the midst of broken and fallen and helplessly oppressed people like us. See, what we see in the gospel lesson, this man who is in desperate need of change and is healed by Christ, that's a microcosm for what God does throughout his ministry in Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't just come to change one man, he comes to change all mankind. And he's changed us. He's changed our condition before God. Because once we were considered enemies, right? We were rebelling against his will, despising his word. We were dead in our transgressions, living among the tombs, unfit to be in his presence. But now, in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's looked on us with mercy. He's accomplished what our efforts can never do. He's made us righteous by taking the punishment for our sin, by living that perfect life in our stead. And through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has changed us from slaves to sons. Or as our first lesson tells us, you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That's your reality. That you are his child. You have been changed. Now, what's interesting is we know we, you know, we trust God's word. He says that's our reality. Okay, we are God's child. And yet, it doesn't always feel like that change is happening, right? A changed heart does not mean that we have everything completely together. That's not what that means. The demon-possessed man who's now restored, he didn't have everything together. Like, can you imagine what after the lesson is, like after the gospel lesson ends, and what, his, what going back into town for that first time was like for that man? Talk about the things that he had to do. He would have to, to work to regain trust from those relationships that had been broken. He had to put his life back together. The effects of his former life didn't go away overnight. But he was changed. And he was healed, and he was given a right mind. In the same way, the effects, the scars of our past, they don't go away instantaneously. There's work to be done in regaining trust and the relationships that have been strained. There's a retraining of our neural pathways to respond to situations in a healthy way as opposed to a sinful way. And even then, we're still going to struggle. But we have been changed. And we have been healed. And we have been given a right mind. Now, I've used that phrase, right mind, a few times. Because what does it mean to be right-minded? Being in a right mind means this. It means that when, as we spend time in his presence, as we're sitting at his feet, just like the, the demon-possessed man now restored was doing, as we do that, our perspectives and our priorities change. We start to see trials that we encounter as opportunities 
to grow and develop in faith. We start to see people who have hurt us as people who are just like us, loved and saved by Jesus. We start to focus less on what we get out of a situation, we get out of a relationship, and more on what we can contribute towards it. But to be clear, being in our right mind does not mean having everything together perfectly. Instead, it's actually the acknowledgement that means accepting that you don't. Being right-minded means you accept that you don't have all of your stuff together. Those in their right mind recognize how much they need Jesus. Not only for eternal life, but for our life here. That's why the restored man was sitting at Christ's feet. That's why he wanted to go with him. And when we're in our right minds, we're doing that very same thing. We're sitting at Christ's feet. We're learning from him. We're finding strength in him. We're finding forgiveness through him. A right mind is one that trusts and relies on the grace of God found in the cross of Christ. A right mind clings to God's promise that all things, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our desires, the world will be changed to be perfect as he is perfect. Now so far today, so far we've, we've really seen ourselves in that role of the demon-possessed man. Right? He was oppressed and he was helpless and so are we. Jesus spoke his powerful word over the man and he does the same thing for us. He was given a right mind and so have we. But there's another part of this story that we need to address. Because in the text, it happens later on in the text. In the text, the man wanted to go with Jesus and Christ stopped him. Instead gave him this mission. said, return home and tell how much God has done for you. The changed man was now a commissioned man to point people to Jesus, to the one who had changed his life, to the one who was powerful enough to change other people's lives as well. And this is the mission that you and I both share because an encounter with Jesus is a powerful thing. It remakes our world. It changes us. And it changes others too. You know, when we look out at the world around us, we see a world full of evil, don't we? We see a world that is violent, with people who are a danger to themselves and to others. We see people who are increasingly isolated from each other, who fail to see the value of human life, we see a culture driven mad by sin. We see a world in need of change. Now the temptation is for us to just be like the townspeople who cast that man out because they couldn't tolerate him or try to chain him down and keep him under guard. But really the temptation for us is that we would solely focus on secular behavioral change. That we think that, if, man, if we just do this, then we can eradicate evil. But it didn't work for the demon-possessed man. It doesn't work in our own lives. It doesn't work in our world either. Now, there's great value in behavioral change. There's great value in pursuing and creating laws that limit violence or protect innocent lives. But at the end of the day, those shackles don't hold back evil. 
the sinner's heart will break them all. Legalism can change some things, but they don't change the heart. They can't scrub away evil. We should pursue those things for sure. Absolutely. They can't take care of the evil heart. But the one who does, the one who can, the one who is powerful enough to cure evil at its root is here in his word. And he's given us this mission to tell how much God has done for you. We've been commissioned to speak God's powerful word of grace and hope that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that we are invited to a better way of life. In fact, we're invited to an eternal life in his kingdom where we and all believers will be fully and perfectly changed. So yeah, we pursue behavioral change. We pursue secular change. It's good. But we don't put our hope in those things. We put our, our hope and our trust in the God of all wisdom, all power, all love, all mercy. And so we point them to Jesus. And we remind them of the love and the mercy that God has for us all in Christ. Let's pray. King Jesus, through the power of your word, you've brought change into our hearts and into our lives. Help us, Lord, to be right-minded, to have a perspective formed and fashioned by your love, and to have a full reliance on your grace. Christ, we also pray that we would be bold witnesses to all that you have done in our lives, so that your kingdom would be expanded into the lives of others. We pray it all in Jesus, in your name.